0: Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host Carter Laren. I'm joined as always by the bad mamma jamma Carrie Smith. Carrie say hi.
1: Hello.
0: Don't forget please to like and subscribe on YouTube. Share the videos. Um, Thanks for all the love we've gotten recently. We had a we're starting to get an increase in the rate at which people subscribe which is always making that makes me happy. So appreciate that. Today, we're super, we're super excited to talk to Dr. Gina Gorlin. Dr. Gorlin is a professor of clinical psychology at the Fairkauf Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva University and a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in Manhattan. Her research on cognitive and motivational factors in emotional disorders has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals. More recently, she's become interested in the role that moral values play in psychotherapy and in motivating or blocking psychological growth and change more generally. You can follow her on her website, which is GinaGorlin.com. Her faculty page and her ResearchGate profile, we'll put links to all of those things below in the show notes. Um, Dr. Gorlin, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I think we're going to start in a little bit of an odd way because this is take two for us and Carrie wants to talk to you about something, I think. Carrie?
1: Uh, well, I have to apologize, people. Thank goodness yesterday wasn't a live video because I totally froze up and and I really appreciate you coming back and giving us your time to do this again. Um, here's here's part of why I froze up. I was feeling really emotional yesterday. I had other personal stuff going on and I was very tired, but I read afterwards Carter was asking what happened and I'd read your piece right beforehand one of your pieces about um it's this one called nurturing our better nature a proposal for Mm -hmm. cognitive integrity um as a foundation for autonomous living and it made me really sad (laughs) carter was like this is a very dry academic piece (laughs) why yeah
2: i'm amazed and humbled and (laughs) grateful that you engaged with it so fully and personally,
1: and well, yeah, I saw myself in it, and it really just kind of it made me think about the parts about self deception and putting things off, and and then I was telling Carter I was going to ask, do you have any room in your schedule for a new client? i <laughs> <laughs> like, but it really, yeah, it really, uh, uh, it affected me a little bit, and I really want to talk to you about it. But um, I appreciate you coming back today when I'm not feeling so so weird.
2: This compliment was more than worth it. So, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. And I'm touched to hear that the article resonated with you. I have cried over this topic many times in my life, so I can certainly relate. And there's certainly plenty of personal misery that's coloring a lot of the background for me and in terms of my interest in this topic. So it warms um, my heart that it resonated with you.
0: Maybe you can start by just telling us what is cognitive integrity and what um, motivated you to do this. Because you did reject kind of the fatalistic nature versus nurture thing. So can you talk about what your motivation was and then what that concept is?
2: Sure. I could talk about this for a long, long time. So feel free to cut me off at any point. But (laughs) to briefly address point by point the question, first, what it is, just definitionally. And then what inspired it for me, the term cognitive integrity. And it's a term I'm still deliberating about whether to keep it or to throw it out in favor of self-honesty or something a little bit more lay friendly, a little bit more intuitive, but the basic meaning of the term, it refers to both the state and the general commitment to being actively honest with ourselves. And the reason that I think it's really important, The reason that I've been focusing on much in clinical work and my research is that I think that it's a locus for us. It is a kind of pivotal lever through which we can exert control over many, many other aspects of our lives. And without it, we, in effect, relinquish control to nurture, to nature, to the powers that be, whether those be our own habits, our own natural you know, tendencies, proclivities, our biases, the traumas that we've been through in the past, you know, whatever those may be, whatever we've learned, whatever we've ingested from the culture, that without having in effect our own informed consent, which is a term we often use in research, right? When we tell a participant who's about to agree to doing a study or an experiment, here's what you're actually signing up for. Here's what it is that you're going to do if you agree to stay, right? That cognitive integrity is a commitment to getting our own informed consent. That's one way that I think we can think about it. It's a commitment to having our eyes open, literally and figuratively, to the full picture of both kind of what are we really thinking? What are we really feeling? What is really motivating us? And based on our knowledge, which can be limited, right? And there can be mistakes that we've made and we're fallible, we're gonna sometimes go wrong, right? Even through our best efforts, but to the best of our knowledge, to the best of our ability in the moment, are we fully, being honest with ourselves, are we fully considering even, and perhaps especially when it's painful, when it's uncomfortable, when in the moment it has an emotional cost, or we just know that it's going to be really hard and kind of a slog. Even then, are we willing to survey the full landscape of what we really know and base our decisions on that knowledge versus selectively turn away from or, or hide from, or make excuses or rationalizations about parts of our knowledge that aren't that pleasant or that we don't want to, have to go through the slog of fully identifying if that makes sense. And, you know, and that has a lot of personal resonance for me.
0: To clarify, you had three, you kind of categorized three, I don't know if they're called modes of thinking, but kind of three models that we, we think about, can you just talk about what they are and how, uh, cognitive integrity is different from the other two? Cause I think to me, that's very explanatory to people.
2: Sure. Yeah. So like, the three modes, that I referred to in the paper are, so one is a passive mode. And I think all of us sometimes experience this mode when we're checked out, when we're mind wandering, when we've gotten really absorbed in something and kind of forget to monitor the time or kind of forget ourselves you know, in the moment and we're just sort of being driven by autopilot. And that's a mode that while we're in it, until something reminds us, until something kind of jogs our memory and we realize, oh shoot, what? I'm not in control right now, that we don't necessarily have a direct conscious choice in the matter. We're, we're kind of drifting, right? So there's the drifting. And there are lots of ways that when we're drifting, we're predictably under the influence of our own habits, our own learning of the environment, of you know, things people are saying to us, how we feel and so on, right? Then there's a pair of modes that I have come to call think cognition or, or like active cognition or active like thinking active awareness on the one side that's what I think of as that cognitive integrity that active honesty that I'm promoting and then on the flip side of that there's a pretense at active cognition there's the trying to fake ourselves out trying there's just kind of an active element to it like there's an intentionality to it like where we're telling ourselves a story or where we're kind of defensive and we're trying really hard to beat back an argument that is kind of threatening to us, but it's not necessarily in fact, because we think we're right or because we think the other argument is wrong, but because it would hurt to have to be wrong, right? But the whole process, it hinges on our own self-deception. As you were mentioning before, it hinges on us convincing ourselves that actually what we want is to know the truth, right? Or like when we tell ourselves a story about why we're you know, too exhausted to go to the gym, I'm, I'm choosing personally salient examples here, right?
0: <laughs> I can relate to that one.
2: I think most of us probably have been there if, if we've tried to you know, impose goals on ourselves, right? But there's an honest way of deciding that you just don't wanna to go to the gym, right? You can easily, do the inventory of kind of like, okay, like right now, just how tired am I? What is in it for me? Like, and is it really worth, you know, if I skip a day at the gym, yeah, like it's going to be a little harder tomorrow and, you know, it could become a bad precedent if I keep it up. But the thing is like, honest to God, I'm just, I don't, it's not worth it to me tonight because I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. I would so much rather watch this new episode of, you know, my favorite show that just came out. I'm going to skip it there's no deception in that, right? Totally honest, totally value oriented, right? Like you're making a choice in an informed way based on all the things that matter to you. And then there's another version of that, which is, you know what? The gym's probably closed right now anyway. They, I feel like I've gone there before at this hour and like there was nobody there. They're probably closed. So yeah, I'm just not going to bother because the, the, like, it wouldn't be open. Yeah, I ate pretty well. And you kind of know better, right? Yeah. go ahead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The example that came to mind for me was I hear people sometimes say, and I've said this before, like, uh, I don't want to think about that right now, or I don't want to talk about that right now. And there's two ways that that can come from. Sometimes it's because that thing's not a priority. I'm focused on something else. And that that subject is not important. But other times it comes from like, that makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to think about and talk about that. And that's the second mode that you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's subtle sometimes, right? Which is why I'm devoting a lot of my professional effort to helping people identify the difference and helping people to notice and name and monitor these different processes in themselves. Again, largely I'm utilizing a lot of my clinical experience, but first and foremost, I'm utilizing my own experience because that's really where a lot of my interest in these things started is I had to become more honest. Like it was something I had to commit to at a certain point. And my life is really different now because I did that. And, and I've really experienced firsthand both the cost of not doing that consistently, the ways that it eats at your self-esteem, your self-credibility, your effectiveness over time, because you're, working with a deliberately doctored data set, right? Like you're making decisions with incomplete information and with like systematic errors built in, right? And consequences you haven't thought through. But also I have come to appreciate the tremendous healing power and the restorative, almost the tonic kind of nature of really consciously attending to this and being really honest with ourselves about the things that we're dishonest with ourselves about, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, that's a great example where it's just subtle, but kind of learning to listen for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So to use the gym analogy, what about someone who says, honestly, I don't feel like going to the gym today, but I'll go tomorrow. And they truly believe they're gonna go tomorrow. (laughs)
2: Yep. But they're just asshole, wrong. Yeah. But they're wrong. <laughs> That's a great question because that clearly <laughs> happens. Like we're really bad at what, in psychology, what we call affective forecasting, like predicting our own mental states and like how we're going to feel, how much energy we're going to have, like how long things are going to take, right? Into the future. We're so bad at that. Which is another way of saying it's really hard to do accurately, right? So we can be totally honest and just really bad at making those predictions. What to me is the crucial difference, though, is if we're on this premise of being actively honest with ourselves and we make that mistake, when we see the next day that we got it wrong, right, when we say, like, oh, you know what, I'm not, this is, I don't feel it today any more than I felt it yesterday and I don't even know what I was thinking, we really take that into account, right, and we inventory that, we take stock of it. We learn from our errors. And that doesn't mean that next time we're going to remember, right? It takes time for this kind of knowledge to really get internalized and for us to assimilate enough data that we can start noticing like the general pattern and that we remember it reliably in different situations. But at least we have a shot at doing that if we honestly attend to and identify the right? The temptation instead might be to say, yeah, whatever, I'll go tomorrow, <laughs> right? To just do the same thing again. And then we're hopeless, then it's just going to keep happening.
0: This reminds me of the George Costanza syndrome, right? He, he says, it's not a lie, if you believe it. Yeah. Like, right. So it's like being a master at self deception is, <laughs> it, is its chosen really path. But that's a
2: really interesting subject in its own right. And psychologists, philosophers have debated it for centuries this question of like, can we actually fully believe our own lies? And psychologically, what would that mean and what form would it take? And I think it's complicated, there's a lot to be said about it. But I think part of what's so pernicious and so damaging about self-deception is that we don't fully believe our own lies, at least not at the time. And we're chipping away at our own credibility. And this is a point, again, starting with myself, starting with when about 10 years ago, in a tear-stained journal entry, I confessed to myself, like, wait, I am bsing my way through life. Like, I'm totally full of it. Like, I'm telling myself that I, like, can't get to this article yet that I'm trying to write because, uh, like, it's just not interesting enough or because it's not what I really want to do 20 years ago. But, like, that's BS. Like, I'm just scared of it or it's just hard for me. And everything is like that. And the problem is now I can't trust myself. Like, even when I have a good basis for dismissing somebody's criticism, I don't believe myself. Like, I think maybe I'm just giving myself a story. Like, maybe I'm full of it. And then I go seeking reassurance from other people. And and that was really what started (laughs) me down this path. I'm like, what do they know about this that I don't know? Like, why would my friend who, like, wasn't there when this person said this crazy, insulting thing to me? Like, why would he know better than I do whether the person is crazy, you know, or whether I'm really all these horrible things that she called. Like, somehow I trust him because his judgment hasn't been impugned, you know, and that you know, he's hearing the story
1: through your lens, which,
2: yeah. Which like, you think like, still then there's like a, a suspect. Yeah. You know, there's a bad witness. So I don't know why that's any better, but yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like these things aren't rational, right? It's like, I want to give myself the emotional fix of having resolved this issue for the moment. And the way that I'm going to get that emotional fix is by having him tell me from his much more wise and objective judgment, because he's not the one, you know, whose self-worth is at stake. Like he needs to tell me that I'm okay. And then I'll believe it. But like, of course, that's not a lasting solution anyway, because The very next time somebody calls me a bad name, or you know that I make a mistake, now I need reassurance again, and I kind of know that that's sort of right. So, so it's a self-perpetuating cycle.
1: Are you uh, so? So the other thing your article made me think about was this book that i bought i can't remember now why i bought it but apparently i thought it was going to help me a few years ago (laughs) cognitive behavioral therapy for dummies hey
2: hey (laughs) whatever the Uh, reason it's a good
1: purchase i think i read the first two chapters and and then said i'll read the other chapter tomorrow and kept doing that for a while. And so I got, I went to feeling really bad, like, oh, I should have read this book a long time ago. And so I pulled it out. Do you, you, can you tell people a little bit about, do you practice cognitive behavioral therapy? Can you tell people what it is?
2: Sure, so yeah, not at all. Yep, so cognitive behavioral therapy, it refers to a broad school of psychotherapy approaches that share a basic core theoretical framework and the basic theoretical framework, which started with a few pioneers, but primarily it's associated with Aaron Beck, who is now like 97 years old and has had a very illustrious career you know, as the founder of CBT. The basic premise is that our feelings come from our thoughts, that the way we feel is conditioned by the way that we think. And sometimes that thinking happens very quickly. And Sometimes it's very automatic and even outside of our conscious awareness until and unless we really tune into it and really monitor it. And then our feelings in turn, you know, can affect our behavior, which then reinforces our thinking that then led to the feelings in the first place and that that can create a vicious cycle. But very importantly, what that also means, according to CBT, is that by changing how we think, we can change how we feel. And we can Reprogram our emotional reactions over time. And, and then there are civic techniques and lots of variants of this approach that emphasize different parts. Like some emphasize the behavior part more, some emphasize the cognition part more, some have original creative ways of approaching one or both of those mechanisms. But the fundamental insight is that our thoughts lead to our feelings and we can change our thoughts.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And is that, I mean, it almost makes so much sense that I feel like, why is that new? It's a fair question. I'm not going to be like an ass about it. I'm just like, why is that new?
2: I'm not going to take offense. I didn't come up with it anyway, right? But it's a totally fair question because in a certain sense, it isn't new. I mean, ideas along these lines have been around at least since Aristotle, as far as I know. In fact, Aristotle had a really detailed, really richly articulated model of how we habituate to certain virtues, to habits of thinking, as well as habits of action and motivation. And he didn't so much attend to the remedial process of how to change our habits when they're not working for us. So in that sense, CBT provides a kind of technology of change that hadn't really been fleshed out before. But the core insights have been around forever. It's just that they hadn't been applied and distilled into a methodology that could both be clinically applied and tested in the laboratory so that we can see how it in fact enacts really powerful changes across a bunch of different problems that we've applied it to.
0: And my understanding is of the type quote types of therapy, CBT is one of the more successful like, uh, Clinically demonstrably successful. Not nothing. My other other understanding is that nothing is great, but it's better than the others. Yeah, is that, you're, I is think that wrong? You're,
2: you're summing up the literature pretty nicely. So, with the caveat that there are real debates about this, about the claim that CBT has won the contest. In fact, you know, that claim, is such as such, is way overstated partly because it's confounded by the fact that CBT practitioners and scholars have generally been much more interested in empirical testing and validation of the sort that kind of counts for purposes of you know, peer-reviewed journals and grant funding and publicity in our culture than the kinds of validation that other therapeutic approaches and advocates are more interested so those who practice more traditional talk therapies those who do what's called psychodynamic therapy or more interpersonal or insight oriented therapies there are lots of differences in the theoretical but there are also lots of similarities some of which are hard to track because different terms get used you know but there are definite differences but the challenging thing is that some of those differences are methodological not just in terms of how you do the therapy, but how you validate it. Like, how do you know that it's right? How do you know that it's working for a particular person? Or how do you know that what's working for this person generalizes to other people with similar problems? Or how do you even define what a problem is? And so it's really hard to compare apples and oranges, you know, partly because these therapies are after different things. So CBT, traditionally, although this is really changing right now, but traditionally it's it's had a real focus on symptom reduction because it's easy to measure whether someone's symptoms got reduced on a questionnaire, right? That is standardized, multiple choice. Everybody takes it. It's the same set of questions. So you can very easily do a statistical test to see did the people that we assigned to the CBT group go down in their average depression score to a larger extent than people in the control group or people in the talk therapy group or whatever. Right. And so partly because of that interest in, empirical validation, CBT traditionally has been much more narrowly focused on like d- getting rid of problems, whereas there's much more of a focus in what are called these insight oriented or psychodynamic therapies on building self-knowledge, building insight, building self-awareness, and creating a certain kind of connection and creating a certain kind of qualitative experience of meaning in life, You know things that are much harder to measure in a standardized way. Right. And so this is just giving you guys a taste of the raging controversies in my field with respect to even just the question of like, which therapies are more effective for what, you know, though CBT certainly has had its in terms of being able to really make consistent changes for a lot of people in a lot of different studies and with different research designs.
0: So maybe it will have a positive impact on other uh other modes of therapy in that it will inspire some more empirical and measurable uh data collection
2: it's already doing that
0: okay i feel like most people go to therapy though for to really get over issues that are actually measurable it seems like not a lot of people that that i know are like i'm going to therapy because i want whatever the terms you said understand myself generalized knowledge and like whatever like people are people like oh, I've got an issue. so i'm going,
2: really? I, I think
1: actually yeah people go for both and i was just thinking as you were saying that it depends on it's probably depending on the person and what they're where they're at a different mm-hmm. type of therapy would be better for them because i know a lot of friends and myself included who i'm old enough where i've i've gotten to the point where i'm pretty i think i have a pretty good grasp on what my issues are I could tell you, mm-hmm. I have some pretty yeah. great insights, so much so that sometimes people are like, you know everything that's wrong with you, why don't you do anything about it?
2: Yeah, <laughs> like, which is so- a really common experience for people coming out of a few years of psychoanalysis or a few years of insight-oriented therapy. It's like, okay, I know myself about as well as anybody could know anybody, but I'm just so miserable. So like, now what, right? I, I, even, I coined my own term for this when I was just learning about psychology and different approaches and trying to fix myself, which was you know, self-awareness without self-improvement. Yes. Because I was noticing that in myself. I'm like, okay, I'm able to name in very sophisticated ways what I'm feeling, but I'm still feeling it and I'm still not doing anything about it. So now what kind of thing?
0: Interesting. Yeah. You, um, in, in the paper we were talking about, you, uh, it seems like you treat the, Active cognitive modes—the decept- both the deception and the uh, the honest mode or the the cognitive uh, integrity mode—as almost like muscles that are that atrophy or grow stronger over time, and the more you do one, the the easier it is, and the harder it is to exercise the other muscle. Um, is that an accurate summation of how you look at that?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot right about that metaphor. And I use it sometimes with clients, not just about specifically the cognitive integrity muscle, but generally about mental habits, habits of thinking a certain way of acting on a certain perspective, you know, that definitely get stronger with use and weaker with disuse. So I think the analogy goes a pretty long way. I think there's certain ways that the analogy can break down if we take it too, too literally, right? Because in fact, we do have a choice about whether to engage our full, honest, present moment awareness, even if we haven't been doing that systematically, right? And that's one of the major ways that I think this can be a therapeutic tool and a tool for self-change, because it's never really fully dependent upon our past experience and what we've practiced. It's like a way out of a lot of those. Bad always
0: open is kind of what you're saying.
2: Don't get me wrong. It can be so much harder. It can be more painful. It can be more difficult. It can be harder to even catch the opportunities to do it and to see the value in doing it. It can be so like the emotional cost and the immediate threat associated with really honestly facing certain things can be so much easier to see, right? And so much more intense and salient to us than the vague, distant, future potential that we might have for leading some sort of different kind of life that we have no idea what it'll look like yet because it doesn't exist yet, right? And it's so uncertain and it's so much farther out in the future. So that's just that's to paint a picture of just how hard it can be. But even then we can do it. And I would argue, and this is really I think one of the most controversial points that I'm pushing for, we can also see the value in doing it. Even though the future is vague and there's a lot that's, you know, that we may not know all the concrete ways yet in which it will benefit us, but there's something about being on and, like, being for real and, like, existing, right? Like, actually being in the world, even if it sucks, even if everything around us is currently just, you know, act failure but at least it's real, at least we're in it, at least we have options for what to do with it and where to navigate versus an illusion, you know, versus like a kind of living death of being in a pretend in a fantasy world, so.
0: Right, do you have zero chance of, of being happy in reality if you're disengaging from reality?
2: Yeah, it's like this, then you don't have a shot.
1: This makes me think of... Um you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, I'm sure, Um, how he talks about um, ceasing to lie. And and when he talks about lying, he says even speaking other people's opinions that you haven't, that aren't really your own, that you really haven't taken a long time to form on your own. It's not something that you've come, I've come to this conclusion. It's just something you've picked up from somewhere and you're repeating it. And a few years ago, um, I don't know how much you know about our other pot. We have a, well, we have a podcast called deprogrammed, which is about my old belief system. And so um, I most, most often refer to it as SJW ideology, but it's, a, I view it as a form of um, identity politics, kind of Marxism, but in any case, you may or may not agree with me. I don't know what your beliefs are, but I came to believe that my entire foundational philosophy on looking at the world was wrong. And I had had this, this, Ideology for for 20 years, and so um, one of the things that was wrong about it was that a lot of times I, when I honestly evaluated, I'm like, oh, I'm saying things that I haven't, I haven't invested the time to know whether I actually believe this or not. I'm saying things that I believe that are correct to say, not wow. what I actually think. And so things started changing for me a lot when I stopped doing that.
2: Um, wow, I mean, so. That's such an exemplar of the virtue that I'm describing. That's really, I mean, that must have taken so much courage. I feel like most people, to some extent, live the way that you just described living pre the deprogramming, right? Where whatever they've like drunk in with their mother's milk, so to speak, like whatever the beliefs, you know, however conventional or unconventional, but like there are at least certain things that they're kind of spouting or that they've just assumed as part of their worldview, that they haven't really done the work of investigating and figuring out for themselves. And it's only a small fraction of those people mm. who have the courage to do what you did. So that's really amazing. And-
1: Thank you. I think, I think uh, what's interesting to me is that I, that trans- transformation and belief, it's taken a couple years and I'm still in some, ty- I don't know. I don't know where I'm going, doctor, but- <laughs> <laughs> And that's okay. <laughs> But I, I can look at that and then look at my personal stuff and say, wow, how can I, I haven't made, I feel like I haven't made very much progress in the personal area, although I, I made a lot of progress in, I guess it's a personal area, but in, in terms of my beliefs about the world. Um, uh, uh, where was I going with this? There was something I wanted to point out. Oh, okay. So one of the things though that led me to do this was, was a book called, I'm just wondering, wondering what your opinion is on this book. Um, my, I had a therapist at the time who suggested I read the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. and I thought it sounded super cheesy, and I put it off for a while, but then I read it live, well, and I I, t- I think I told Carter this, I would listen to it on two times, the speed setting, because I wanted The Power of Now really fast. Oh, but, that's awesome. But, that's but it that's actually, poetry. it's surprisingly... <laughs> Affected me, and it and I read it again on the regular speed, or I listened to it again on the speed setting regular one, and it he seemed like he was saying a lot of what you're saying, which is to get out of. He helped me understand that a lot of the time I wasn't in the present; mm-hmm. I was focusing on things in the past, or I was being anxious about potential things in the future. Yeah, yeah. Do you totally. think that that book is has that that it's worthwhile that there are things people can glean from it, or what's your opinion
2: on it? Yeah, yeah. So I so. Full disclosure, I haven't actually read The Power of oh, okay. but I'm familiar with some of the ideas that it's drawing on and, and that it's you know, putting forth. And the wider, I, I don't know to what extent the book explicitly references mindfulness or to what extent he would see himself as a proponent of mindfulness or meditation or that category of practices. My, from what I've heard about the book and from people's descriptions of how it's affected them, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap. And the practice and the general approach and orientation to life that mindfulness, that the mindfulness literature teaches and espouses, was tremendously helpful to me and happened largely in step with my own, own journey or self honesty kind of integrity toward a lot of you know, this work that I've described. So I absolutely agree that it's relevant. I think. There's a lot I could say about ways that I think it's incomplete, but also ways in which it's tremendously powerful and capturing deep insights about how to really take the reins of our mind, which is ironic because sometimes that's emphasized more, sometimes less, sometimes in some variants of mindfulness practice, there's even an explicit injunction to be non-striving, to be... to to be rather than do where there's an implication where you might interpret that as a kind of passivity, even though in fact, you know, and the way mindfulness gets defined, one of the most commonly cited definitions of mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. It's a definition by Jon Kabat-Zinn who brought mindfulness to the West, who has done a lot of the work in testing it scientifically and popularizing it in demonstrating it to large audiences of people. So, you know, intention is in there, right? And that focus on the present moment. And usually the emphasis, and I don't know if this fits uh, the recommendations in the power of now, I'm curious, but within standard mindfulness practice, often you at least start by anchoring your attention to senses, to, to sensory input, like the sounds in the room, your own proprioception, meaning the feeling of your breath just breathing itself. It's one of the most common starting points for mindfulness. And I think there's a practical reason for that, which is that we're always breathing. It's always there. It's real. It's what it is. You can't really misinterpret it too much, right? Like you can't go on too much of a tailspin about like the analysis of your breathing. It's just kind of, this is what it is, right? And so it anchors you in reality, in the present, in what's real and I think is a real launching point for then being able to make a lot of downstream choices about, okay, what do I want to be thinking about? Like, what do I want to do next? What's actually important to me here? You know, and, and to kind of get out of that vortex of thinking about, yeah, past and future, as you mentioned, that, that can really have a powerful you know, suck on us sometimes. Thank you. Thanks for yeah, answering that does it sound analogous like yes
1: it does i read some other stuff after that book that about mindfulness and so i think i might be getting i don't i'll probably get some of it confused but it did seem to be about all about the same thing and it it's weird because a lot of the stuff i was reading were from different areas like i was reading eckhart tolle but i was reading jordan peterson and also bernard michael bernard beckwith who's a a pastor and agape and but all of these things they seem to be yeah, saying the same thing yeah they were converging it was interesting that's cool
0: are you worried about um the if, i know this is going to sound like unrelated but it's related I'll, I'll are you worried about the effect of uh kind of digital devices and social media on creating social anxiety because you you talked about it sounds like we're talking about focus which if I'm not mistaking, is kind of related to what what you've talked about with respect to inhibitory control. And, oh, you've which done is
2: your homework. That's awesome. Back. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so I'm wondering if, and you've related, you've said that this, uh, you know, inhibitory control modulates social anxiety. And to me, I was, um, I, I'm, I know I'm glossing over it. There's, it's more complex. But that, to you're me, doing great.
2: <laughs> I, I wish thought, I could sum I, it up like that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. I'm immediately thinking like, okay, um, there's a lot. I don't want to take away free will because uh, certainly you have the choice whether or not to respond to the Facebook notifications all the time, but there's certainly more temptation. And if we're going to use the analogy of the muscle atrophying or getting stronger um, in the face of this more temptation, if you continually indulge in it, it seems like it would get harder to focus and it seems like that might be then correlated to social anxiety Mm-hmm. Is, am I putting those pieces together correctly?
2: I'm well, correctly. I mean, there's a whole line of research. There's tons of ongoing, you know, debate and empirical work happening to answer just those very questions. So I don't want to make a blanket statement. Oh yeah, it's what sure. you said, you know, or it's not what you. No, said.
0: no. I mean, like, am I thinking about it in the proper way? I guess is my is my question.
2: Yeah, I mean, it. I think what you're saying is very. Plausible, and there's some who have addressed that at least sometimes that is happening. Something like that is happening. That with certain kinds of social media use that do pull for a kind of almost addictive, indiscriminate clicking and you know and autopilot reactivity mode, right? That I think we've all experienced at least on occasion, and we you know. We're, you know what we're talking about and especially to the extent that someone's vulnerable to that that someone already has some difficulties with sustaining attention or inhibiting you know, impulses etc that that can certainly create further negative loops right that it can create a vicious cycle of unhelpful habits and that it can make it harder to pull ourselves out of that autopilot mode and really make front-end conscious decisions about what we're doing and but i also want to say that it really depends on how you're using the technology right and in fact some of the most widely available mindfulness interventions are app-based interventions that have really increased the reach of a lot of these tools right so and on Facebook, you'll often find ads for Headspace and for a lot of these different exercises that you can find on the internet that if you choose to utilize that technology in a purposeful way, it's way better than not having that technology, right? If you didn't have a smartphone, you also wouldn't have access, at least certainly not such ready access to tons and tons of guided meditation practices that you can just you know, press play at a moment's notice, wherever you are. So, I think technology is a weapon of good or ill. You know, just like any other tool, and often it it does work against us. But I think if we're creative about it, we can very much use it in our favor.
0: Yeah, I'm not suggesting that we we we're, we should be luddites. I guess my a more practical question would be, how would how do you approach social media, and how would you recommend people approach? <laughs> Because
2: questions potentially there,
0: yeah. there's a danger there it seems like
2: yeah I mean I I'm a work in progress in that regard as in many others I I could answer the question about how I currently approach it I could answer the more you know optimistic question of how one could ideally approach it but I think maybe both are helpful because in fact it's not that easy to get to the ideal so I would say in my particular case, This isn't an optimal solution necessarily, but I have naturally limited my exposure to certain social media outlets, partly to avoid this whole rabbit hole. So I'm not really on Twitter. I think I have three tweets total to my name to date. And that's something I actually, you know, I want to re-engage. I want to actually, there are real benefits to becoming more active on social media. But right now I haven't cracked for myself, the challenge of how to do that in a way that's gonna be more constructive than destructive. And, and I do think that there are better ways, even if I haven't managed to implement and to choose the ones that were gonna work for me the best. I think, you know, there's everything from there are actual, I'm sure you guys you know, have heard variants of like tools that allow you to limit how, like during what times of day you can even access Certain sites, right? Like you can make Facebook be off limits to you from nine to five or from, you know, nine to nine or after half an hour, you know, or whatever it may be. There are lots and lots of different tools like that that exist that allow you to exert your own proactive control over your stimuli. And of course, there are lots of more low tech ways to do that too, where you develop a regimen, you develop a hygiene of only you know, spending half an hour a day or, or only when you're in a certain place at a certain time, just like we do with sleep, with eating, with any part of our life where we have habits that are either working for us or against us and where there are context cues and there are muscle-like you know associations that we form that we can really train up for ourselves in a way that helps us, right, rather than hurts us. And so with the internet too, it's a matter of really being intentional about when you're dishing it out, so to speak, you know, when you're letting yourself go into that rabbit hole so that you're getting the value from it, but on your own terms, you know, even if that means you have an alarm that goes off after half an hour, and then you have to close Facebook or whatever it may be.
1: I need a tiger that that comes in and will eat me.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's a Kind of one-time solution. <laughs> I like the. I like, like the promise. Yes. <laughs> threaten to eat you. Yes, threaten to it eat, eat me. Work.
0: Well, but you have to be real. Maybe it needs to draw blood. If, if the threat is uh, empty, it may not work. It may not work. That's
2: true. I mean, <laughs> this kind of, for me, comes full circle in terms of why I'm promoting cognitive integrity as this real foundation for change because what I've found in myself and in my clients is that all these little gimmicks and strategies that I can recommend to people to then take home and implement so that they're setting their own limits so that they're, you know, stopping when the alarm goes off, they only work if you take yourself seriously, right? They only work if you have the built up kind of self-credibility that if you say, yeah, I'm going to stop when the alarm goes off, like that means something to you, you know? And like you've got enough of a kind of built up reputation with yourself of actually following through on stuff that it would cost you. It would be this loss of, just like, you know, if you have earned someone's business and they like you and they're a loyal customer and they keep coming back, like you, you really don't want to let them down. Like you want to keep them satisfied, right? So they'll contain, so that you can kind of maintain this reputation that you've built and worked for. I think it's the same with ourselves and sometimes that itself is the entry point like i'm just going to stop now because i want to be able to believe myself later when i say i'm going to stop you know and it's really hard at first
1: this is so personally relevant i feel like i should be paying you for this
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're i'm getting plenty of value back okay, for good. really insightful questions so yeah
1: because me. you know that's really funny i've described uh i've actually said these words out loud in the past it's been a while but i remember saying Like it's much easier, like I can always let myself down, but I can't let other people down. And so I've always done better when I had some type of accountability partner for something, like even the gym. If I was in a class, great. If I just want myself to go, you know, to go back to the gym analogy. So that's really interesting. You have to, you have to, I just wrote that down, build up self-credibility, trust yourself and not want to let yourself down. That's amazing.
2: Because you're right. I mean, I think it's near universal what you're describing that we- have a much easier time letting ourselves down than letting other people down, right? And it's sort of ironic because ultimately, like whose fate is gonna matter more to us than our own, right, and whose fate are we more in charge of, right? It's like if we let someone else down, whatever, they just go find a new friend, right? They just don't deal with us the next time or you know, they get someone else to do it. But if we let ourselves down, like we're stuck with ourselves. Like we're all we've got, you know? And yet it's so much easier when it's somebody else because they're right out there, right? And it's just, it's harder to get away with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I do feel like we could have a four-hour therapy discussion. You, hey, now. this
2: is what I live for, so <laughs> bring it <laughs> off.
0: But I don't, I don't want to run out of time. And there is, an, it, there is something that we want to talk about that we told you we were going to talk about. Oh,
1: wait, one more quick thing. If rendition. you
0: don't. Okay. Before we
1: transition, one more last thing, um, because I thought I wrote this down, I thought this was important. In that first paper we were talking about how you said that because often I think we think of ourselves, our, our personality, our our behaviors, our characteristics as a combination of nature versus nurture. So biology and then how we're raised, right? And you you were saying, I think even in the opening abstract or the paragraph that forty to sixty percent of our character traits are determined by something other than,
2: um, is determined right. the
1: right word or, or yeah. is somehow it's a product of something else. And that mm-hmm. was shocking to me because that's, it seems like a large percentage up, up to 40 or 60% not being determined necessarily
2: right.
1: or dictated by biology or environment. And so mm-hmm. um, I just really appreciated how you pointed out that that can lock people. If you believe that all that stuff is determined in advance, that it can lock you into uh, bad habits that you have, or it can lock you into this thinking of, of these are things I can't change about myself. This is just who I am.
2: Yeah. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah.
1: Totally. And I see that in, in, in people and in myself all the time. And And even in what Carter, what we're about to talk about this next topic. So my old belief system, he and I have talked about a lot. Um, it's all based on putting people in identity groups and then everything is, is viewed through this lens of you, everything is a struggle for power and your power is determined by what group you're in. And so one of these groups that this group that's evolved is if you have some type of mental health issue, it's viewed as part of your identity and people will wear it like a badge. And I think that's really destructive because I see a lot of people in my old belief system who walk around as if that is something to be proud of, not something to be overcome. It's like, I am, you know, I have depression and anxiety and they view that's it as just yeah. period, that is who I am. It's like, that is not who you are.
2: <laughs> like, Certainly doesn't have to be, right? Yeah.
1: Right, I don't think it has to be. So I, I thought that was just, yeah, 40 to 60% kind of blew my mind, not yeah. being determined by biology or environment. Like,
2: I mean, and we know that from the behavior geneticists, right? Like that research has been done by the people whose job it is to try to parse out the contributions of nature and nurture who do really rigorous twin designs and adoption studies. And now, you know, genome-wide, complicated kind of molecular genetic studies where they're parsing the genome into a million little SNPs and seeing what correlates with what. And uh, they've been really rigorous in trying to understand the contributions of these different factors. And they haven't been able to explain 40 to 60%. And that's been a real... For some in the field, that's kind of a bugaboo, like, oh, like, is it really just all of this is just noise or all of this is just chance? Like, this is so lame, you know, that we can't explain more of human behavior. But for some, and, and, and this is what inspired me to join this initiative, this Genetics and Human Agency, in a project funded by the Templeton Foundation that really, um, put this forth as a research question, you know, what about agency? What about Where in this picture might human free will emerge? And for for some researchers, this is an opportunity. This is actually exciting that, oh, maybe these remaining 40 to 60 percent, maybe it's not a gloomy prospect that we just can't understand human behavior in meaningful terms. Maybe it's the bright prospect that we have leverage over ourselves and over, you know, what happens with those 40 to 60 percent.
0: Yeah, I you know what struck me when I read that part just the beginning of your paper that part of your paper was uh you know I've I've never been a determinist. I've believed in free will. I'm pretty sure my entire life. I, maybe there was a time when I was young when I haven't, but uh and I've also been, you know, we've interviewed behavioral uh, uh, geneticists and like I've we've t- I've talked to people who've looked at this and I've read some material and it seems like Maybe more in the past, this was the case, but there's been the behavioral essentialists and the genetic essentialists. And I never realized that that left no room for anything else. I never like stepped back and went, well, wait a minute. If it's that and that, where's free will? Um, And your observation that that you're pointing out like, hey, see that 40 to 60 percent? It's in there somewhere. That's where it is, no matter what we want to call it. Um, I found it actually quite comforting. And I I was like a sigh of relief, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. There should be unexplainable, a percentage that's unexplainable.
2: No, absolutely. Though, Without going into the the technical aspects, which I only half understand myself, I do want to say we're looking at the prediction of behavior at very different levels of analysis here. So to be able to say, you know, what it means, first of all, what it means to say that a behavior is heritable, meaning like 50% of it, 60%, 80% of it is predicted by the genetic similarity between identical versus fraternal twins. That's usually the metric that's used to determine heritability. That doesn't tell us anything about, in principle, how much free will we can exert over that behavior. I mean, it can give us indirect clues, but they're only very indirect in the sense that it's just telling us. Descriptively, people who share all their genes versus half their genes, how often do they tend to end up similar on this trait, right? Now this includes traits like your political orientation, your personality, you know, how introverted or extroverted you are, your religious beliefs, right? There are all kinds of things that are, all of which at least are somewhat heritable. There's like at least some contribution of genes Meaning, again, correlationally, you're more likely to believe this if your twin believes it, if your identical twin believes it, than if your fraternal twin believes it. But that doesn't mean you couldn't change it. And that doesn't mean that in a different culture that encourages more active, independent thinking about that type of issue, that it actually wouldn't be less heritable. Right? Sometimes what we find is actually that heritability differs depending on the cultural context. That, uh, for oh, example... Wow. So so this is not this like static fixed value that tells us by the nature of this behavior, it is determined 40%. Nothing, we don't know anything about what's determined by what based on these findings. They're all correlational and they could all be different depending on what people do differently that then suddenly makes that, you know, trait or that behavior much more variable or much more subject to control or less subject to control. Height Is much more heritable in countries with better nutrition than countries with worse nutrition. Meaning there's a lot more variability in how tall you get that has nothing to do with your genes if you come from a country where you're not guaranteed basically good access to nutrition, right? IQ is more heritable in higher, in more educated families, meaning you, you know, something like that you reach whatever your potential might be more consistently, more reliably when you're given you know, lots of resources and you're at a good school and you're encouraged to study and all that. Whereas in a family, in an environment where the resources aren't as kind of set for you, there's a lot more variability depending on what you do, what classes you end up in, who you talk to, right? So heritability is not itself a kind of fixed quotient, you know, and the same can be said for the 40 to 60 percent. Like maybe we're just not explaining it because, you know, we're not kind of looking in the right places for that heritability or because there are just other factors we haven't measured, right? That we have free will, I don't think is dependent on any of the particular correlational findings that we get from this. Does that make sense? Even though I do think it's, yes. a, you know, important observation to make.
0: Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think it's a super important point to bring out because it's, I, I'm, I'm hearing you very clearly say that, you know, a, a tendency in outcome maybe a predisposition. It may be lots of things, but it's not necessarily deterministic. And it doesn't mean there's not other factors like free will that can come in and change it. Um, So I I think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: I want to say something interesting. We we may or may not, you can cut this out if you want to. Carter and I were just talking before you came on about, I have a friend who's an atheist who doesn't believe in free will. Um,
0: Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, by the way, Carrie. That, like, it's. I was thinking it in my head. I'm like, I hope Carrie mentions the determinist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we were just talking about him because, I mean, Carter's an atheist, but he does believe in free will. This guy, I can't really wrap my head around it. We've had conversations before. We keep having the same philosophical conversation where, um, he basically believes that there's a biological or environmental reason for everything. So I I would ask him, okay, what if he doesn't believe in the, in evil? He believes that eventually science is going to help us understand what we call evil. And you could take a pill and cure it or something. I don't know. So I'm like, so what about this nanny in New York that killed the kids that were in her charge? It was a horrible story. This happened a few years ago. She was just um, her trial just happened this past year. And like you look at something like that, that is evil. Like she behaved in an evil way. That's the way I view that he thinks that there is something that we don't understand yet about her brain chemistry that at some point in the future will be that compelled her to act in that way that we'll be able to correct things like that. And so there's nothing we do. I've asked him, well, what about, you know, you're talking about people choosing to change their behavior, right? So what about an addict who chooses to get sober? he believes there's something in their biology yep. that yep. has compelled them to get sober, but not another person. They're not actually choosing to get sober. They're compelled to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't understand that belief.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously as someone who also doesn't share that view, mm-hmm. I have a much easier time resonating with your confusion, <laughs> You know, but it's a really common belief that he's describing it's very widespread in the sciences it's held by probably the majority certainly the plurality of scholars who are doing work today in academia i would say in most of the hard sciences where there's even this issue raised you know obviously biology but also neuroscience and um, biochemistry and genetics and um and medicine, like more theoretical medicine and social sci- scientific fields, like obviously psychology and sociology. I mean, this is held by the majority of scholars. Either, I've actually heard the numbers broken down from surveys of hard determinist versus soft determinist versus, quote, libertarian or um, like more... You might, one might call self-determinist kinds of perspectives. And what you're describing sounds to me like a hard determinist view, mm-hmm. that literally all of our behavior boils down to like specific biological pushes you know, or pulls on us. There's a compatibilist or soft determinist view, which is held by probably a solid minority of academics though not quite as many as, you know, will believe in the hard determinist view that you're describing. The soft determinists believe a softer version of that, which is something like, yeah, everything has a cause. You know, if we had total omniscience, then we would be able to predict perfectly what someone's going to do. But that's sort of beside the point, because in fact, in our lived day-to-day experience, of course we make choices. And of course we have, you know, beliefs that we act on and, You know, we deliberate and there's a difference between a decision that you make deliberatively versus a decision that you make impulsively. And that's like a real meaningful thing. You know, so there are definitely people like that's not a crazy view to have in academia. Notice it's still determinism, but it's like a softened version, right? Where eh, we can allow for both of these things. It's really rare to find, quote unquote, a libertarian, like somebody who actually thinks that we choose between alternatives and that it could turn out more than one way, depending on what we choose. That's, that is the controversial view. In, in, wow. That's the, the controversial head. view. Oh, yeah. But see, that, goes, so. that
1: runs counter to what we were talking about with believing that your behavior is within your control yeah. and you can change it.
2: Yeah. So I'm one of those rare people, to be clear. <laughs> okay. I'm one of those weirdos who <laughs> is a you know, self-determinist, uh, incompatibilist, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So I- I'm with you on that. But it's interesting, I think, because some of the core assumptions of the determinist view are really entrenched in our thinking, in the, especially in the scientific establishment, and have real compelling elements to them. So because, for example, the, uh, the belief in causality, like the belief in non-magic, the belief that like the world can be understood, that it is natural, that most mysteries turn out to have real explanations if we look deeply enough and if we really probe, you know, so the scientific mindset, right, tends to go hand in hand with the belief that therefore we can't be an exception, that we are also caused, that there must be a prior cause for every effect. And thus, yeah, I mean, it's incoherent to think that we could just magically do one thing or another thing with nothing causing us to do the particular thing that we do. Now I think that that's actually a, a, a subtle but fundamental difference in the view of causality mm-hmm. that people accept and I think there's a, a way of understanding causality that doesn't require this like one cause one effect like match up this like pairing like I think that's kind of an artificial and more superficial observation of how most causal mechanisms work, but that it's not really what's fundamental to things being caused. I think it's kind of things acting in a certain way because of the way that they are and not in some like crazy magical way. And the way that we are is that we have this cognitive apparatus that can deliberate and that can choose between alternatives. And I think that that's irreducible. I think that's part of our nature. It's part of our natural evolved, even if you want, biological state that we we have a brain and we have a mind and we have a set of characteristics such that we're able to and in fact we kind of have to we have no choice but to make choices the way that we're built so but that's a very different account than you get from even most people again the very few people at least in academia who would make a case for free will so
0: it it's fascinating to me because the the determinist view especially the hard determinist view always leaves me with this immense sense of demotivation like why would you why would you have an entire field of therapy and psychology if like who cares if you're really a determinist why aren't you just crawl up in the corner and die like what (laughs) I'm actually, I'm actually, so' I don't, I, have an I, I'm not a threat I've just I mean like what what motivation do you have to do anything? and I I know that's not an argument. It's just my kind of my personal that's what I'm struck with when i when I hear that and um and yet, you know, and I know that there are a lot of determinists. I always question whether they're actually determinists or whether they like professing to be determinists because I would argue, their behavior suggests that they're not actually determinists. It's just their words.
2: Yeah. Well, well, so what's, yeah, what's really interesting is that determinists, many determinists who really think about this explicitly and write about it, they have an answer to your question about like, what, what motivates you and like, how do you get up in the morning? The common response, I don't know how universal it is, but that's commonly given by determinists who think of this is, it's good to believe in free will. Like, we're not saying you shouldn't believe in it. By all means, believe in it. In fact, empirically, people who believe in free will do better than people who don't believe in free will. So like that in itself seems to be a positive influence on people. So yeah, by all means, go ahead and assume that you're free. Act like you're free. You know, knock yourself out. Like, you know, seek rewards when you do something good. Like, seek punishments when you do something good. Sure. It's all, in fact, fake and, and BS because we know that nature just can't possibly work but it's fine. We can act as if.
0: Isn't that a self-admission that they're evil? Because that seems like we know that this belief is good, but we're going to spend our life telling you that it's not real. But it's good. It's, it's almost like it's self-admission that like, they're sadists.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's like saying in the movie The Matrix, The Matrix isn't real, but please continue to live in it and pretend right. like it is
2: <laughs> now. To to be as charitable, you know, part of my commitment to cognitive integrity, when I manage to exemplify it, you know, and to live up to it, is to really be charitable to views I disagree with, and to really try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And you know, where the reflex might be to just kind of take umbrage and be kind of dismissive of it because it seems crazy on its face, right? I very much feel that way toward determinism. All the things you guys are saying, I have the same uh, reflex. And so as a self-corrective in part, to try to really get inside the head of somebody who might think this way and think like, what is the best case scenario? Like what what might be a noble and honest motivation for something like this? And I would say in the best case scenario, it's because of a scientist of integrity, that they cling to that belief because their best understanding of the natural world really seems to necessitate that everything has a cause. And I agree with them that far. I do think everything has a cause, right? But then what that means to them on their model, on their understanding, which I think is a fairly sophisticated understanding with a long history of philosophical rigor behind it, even if I don't ultimately agree with it, right? but on their understanding of the natural world and of what it means to be scientific and to be objective and honest about the evidence is to acknowledge that every effect has a cause and that we're not exceptions to that rule, right? So if you honestly take in that perspective, and I think it's a, you know, there are much worse perspectives you could have than that, because it's like largely in the spirit of scientific and trying to be observational, you know, and to not, Grant magical exceptions just because it would feel good. <laughs> right. Which is the temptation So right. like, OK, whatever. Right. somehow it works out that I'm free and I don't care to figure out the details. Right. Like, I think there are rigorous scientists who just aren't satisfied with that, because until they can really get an explanation that's compatible with what they know and understand about science. It would be a cop out for them to just say, ah, I guess we're free. Not quite sure how that works or why that works, and it seems kind of magical, but whatever, let's go with it. Do you see what I mean? So, well, if anything, I, I, I get that. Be, you know, really honest about it as best I, I, can.
0: I kind of get that, but wouldn't the honest position? So that would be an honest position, I think, if you were a determinist, but you weren't out saying, well, if you weren't behaving as if free will exists, and you were a hard determinist. But if you're going to behave as free will exists, it seems like you, you you necessarily need to slide into the category of soft determinism and and say, well, like I clearly, in order to have integrity, I have to admit I behave as if free will exists. We all behave as if free will exists. I everything I do presupposes free will. So, but I'm really uncomfortable with it because uh, look, all of my scientific knowledge is based on causality, and so. I, I would have to then fit into the soft determinist category of, you know what, there's a mechanism there and we have yet to determine it, but it must be a causal mechanism. And and, yeah. and that's what free, free will is somehow.
2: Yes, and I do think that I, I tend to find that I am more sympathetic to and sort of have better conversations and collaborations with people who follow the soft determinist camp, I think largely for that reason you know, I think the people who are hard determinists, but like in a way that's sort of honest and forgivable are people who this isn't like their main line of work and it's not their focus. It's just something that they haven't and wouldn't claim to have like really thought all that hard about. And to the extent that they are called upon to give a view, this is sort of the best they've got, you know, but that it's not running their lives and that they don't run their lives by this view and they don't try to Shove it down other people's throats. So, you know, there are of course there are dishonest versions of each of these views that one could have, right? Or dishonest ways to hold these views. But
0: yep. interesting. Yeah. We um th- the main reason we even thought about talking to someone like you was Carrie and I ran into a few instances of very obvious organized events around unearned guilt and i'll use michael Hurd's definition of unearned guilt which is unearned guilt is a feeling of responsibility for something that's not your fault pretty straightforward now maybe you want to correct that but that's the that that's his layman's definition first before i continue actually do you want to would you correct that at all is there any change you would make to that definition
2: i'm hearing it for the first time so i don't have a considered you want to it strikes me as plausible though I'd have to think through whether it's really kind of getting at the right level of specificity and because it seems a little laypersony
0: to to me. Yeah, but it's fine. I think it's a good working
2: definition. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, I know that this concept exists across the political spectrum, but we first noticed it in specifically the radical social justice left. At least we've seen it more prominently in the radical social, social justice left. It's not the first time I've seen it. Um, but uh, the, the few things that we saw, I'll read out some events to you just so in case you're not aware. There, there is something called Check Your Privilege Workshops, and I'm sure other versions of these, where um, white people go for the weekend, they pay several hundred bucks, to be, Carrie can explain more about what it is, but basically, to be berated and told that you're racist and horrible and apologize for your being. Um, there's a, a lighter version of that by um, one of the founders, is Syra Rao, who's very active on Twitter. I know you're not on Twitter much, but uh, very active social justice warrior. She has a thing called Race to Dinner. Similarly, you invite people of color to your house, and they. Uh, berate you and they they're very explicit on the website we're not here to make you feel good uh we're here to like make you feel bad
1: you're here to shut um, up and sit and you're so this is my old belief system and it it's very common as carter said my 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 experience with it is more anecdotal than his it because i i've been to similar things although not one of these explicitly
2: mm-hmm.
1: um i i went to i went to some of the early ones when i first got into this belief system 20 years ago yeah. but um I know women that go to them and they're like, you, you, they're literally being told, as you said, like the dinner one, you are, you, you are going to sit in the pain and discomfort of women of color. And we're not here to, uh, we're not here to experience your white female tears. And it's time for you to, to shut up and blah, blah, blah. But and I know women that have gone to these and they pay good money. They're expensive workshops. Wow. Um, and they, they're, it's a, good way. I mean, it's, I kind of view it as snake oil in a way, because you're selling this sort of absolution from this thing that this person thinks is a sin in a way, or some, some kind of guilt. Am I explaining it right, Carter?
0: Well, I, I mean, I would say it is very comparable to the original sin. I I view it as, as an atheist, I view it very much as um, the, I think it was the Catholic tradition, which I think it was part of actually the Reformation was getting rid of this, but were you like, you could, pay for your sins to be forgiven right it was like that kind of a thing um but yeah and and then you know and there was the Marianne Williamson prayer that was circula- circulating the internet recently it was from 2016 but it, similarly she asked all the people of color to stand up and all the white people to stand up and the white people to put their hands on the people of color and apologize for slavery and racism and so you know assuming that none of these people are 250 years old or 200 years old or whatever uh, no one there actually owned slaves or was responsible for enacting Jim Crow laws or anything like that. Um, so I guess the, what struck Carrie and, and me was not that people wanted to do this, because people will make money and throw blame at people if it's – that's fine. Not fine, but that's expected. <laughs> it's that it works and that there seems to be this growing community of people who – Kind of are into wearing hair shirts and self-flagellation and being told that they're horrible, uh, and accepting this unearned guilt.
2: And there always have been in some form, right? I mean, the very metaphor of the hair shirt. I'm
0: just seeing a rise. Way back. Yeah, but it's a secular rise, and I, I, yes, I'm. That has been a part of many religions, right? But this is a secular thing.
2: Yeah, it's very. I know
0: that you have the answers to everything. So what's going on? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Let me first just clarify that I do not have the answers to everything, <laughs> and some, I, and I have some wrong answers, I'm sure, but I'll do my best. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could just riff on this phenomenon, or if there are more specific questions, we can start.
0: Well, I, I, I do kind of want to have, if you riff on the phenomenon, the, the part of one of your papers that I pulled out, uh, I think it was the one on... I think it was the main one that we've been talking about, uh, about cognitive integrity. I'm going to read this section because it sounded relevant to me. And maybe you can start riffing from here. I don't know. Um, But you write, notably, even though these cognitive distortions often cast the patient in an overly negative rather than an overly positive light, they may share the common self-deceptive goal of reducing or removing perceived responsibility for action, For example, a patient may attribute global and unchangeable negative traits to oneself akin to the genetic essentialist beliefs described earlier, e.g., I can't really help my depressed and antisocial nature since it's in my genes.
2: Yeah, very relevant. Good call. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. So, So I think there's so much wrong with the identity politics mentality that it's almost hard to know where to start because we're assuming from the outset that we are defined by the color of our skin by the social class that we were born into right i mean there's an inherent assumption here of a fundamentally racist conception of humanity right and of what makes us who we are and of what determines our behavior and our personalities right And it's ironic that in this case, it's coming in reaction to a lot of very real racism and very real challenges that I think we still face as a culture. But the fundamental assumption is the same, right? It's that we are defined by features of our genetics, of our race, our ethnicity, that we had nothing to do with choosing. And it's kind of impersonal, right?
0: Not just kind of.
2: It's profoundly impersonal, right? So there's nothing really about it that, there's no, speaking of causality, Like there's no causal link to be drawn between particular choices you've made, particular actions you've taken, particular ways that you've conducted yourself, particular attitudes even, even though there's some implication that certain attitudes go hand in hand with being born a certain way, with being in a certain part of society, right? But it's kind of assumed as almost this passive outcome. Like, of course you have this attitude because you're one of these, right? And so it's hard to seek absolution. I, I mean, for that matter, you know, it's hard to either avoid sin or seek absolution for sin when the sin has, in effect, nothing to do with you, right? Like nothing to do with things that you actually choose. And... And I I do think this goes very you know, that this is a very ubiquitous phenomenon obviously within a lot of religious beliefs and communities, but but not exclusively. I think tribalism, I think this identity politics perspective that that is now really overrunning our nation and perhaps increasingly the world across political aisles, because I think it, there's a very strong case to be made that Trump is identity politics for white people, right, and is just leveraging a lot of the same tribal hatred and, and collective identity, right, that probably got him elected in the first place, right, as an outlash, as a reaction against a lot of the same kinds of collective guilt and shame and, and warfare on the other side. Right, and I think it's, there's a common denominator to all of these ideologies, right, which is that your moral status and your identity as a person has to do with something other than you, right? It doesn't matter. It, sometimes it has to do with God and with the sins of your fathers and Sometimes it has to, you know, and God is the one who determines and who has set into place a certain code of ethics that predates you and has nothing to do with your life and what you want and and what matters to you, but is just there as a a source of judgment and condemnation, right? And atonement as like a a way to purchase self-esteem, in effect, kind of arbitrarily by meeting someone else's dictates. And it's the same thing if, if the dictates come from your group, right? Or they come from your race or your class or whatever, however we define kind of the unit, right, of judgment and concern. It's not you. And I think that's really what's common to all of these different perspectives.
1: It's interesting. One, is one difference is that with the SJW religion, my old ideology, the absolution though is not, as you kind of touched on or or were about to, it it's not um, permanent. It's a temporary absolution. They they are constantly seeking it, and so you go to one of these workshops, and then you go to another, and then you go to another, and you become an evangelist who talks about your. who talks to your tribe, your group, like, so if you're a white person, you talk to white people about your white privilege. If you're a man, you talk to men about your male privilege, but you continually have, you, you do that. You're doing works in effect, you're doing works. um, But you're also having to continually seek the absolution. It's not, so I see that as one difference between this and I'm a pretty new Christian and one, the absolution is it's there. I, I see it as something different. It's like you are forgiven if you ask, you don't have to keep asking. That's just the way I view it, I don't, whatever. And, and I don't think, I don't see the same for SJW ideology. It's, it's a continual, there's no grace. It's like you have to keep coming back
2: anyway. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I also am an atheist and my atheism goes way back. And so that's very much you know, the perspective I come from. I think it's really interesting the difference that you're describing and it's probably an important and a meaningful one, though I also wonder, you know, as much as different perspectives can differ on dimensions of like, how easy or hard it is to get absolution, how long the absolution lasts, and kind of, you know, what you have to do to get it, I think th- what, what seems to remain constant across all these perspectives is that it's determined by someone or something outside of you right? Like, how do you know that you've got grace? How do you know that you've been absolved? Wait, right. I mean, it may be that you're kind of feeling it and it's like, you know, and it may be a communication from somewhere or actual or, you know, or, or espoused communication, whether from your group or from God or from whatever sort, but it's sort of like, you're still having to ask, right? It's still sort of coming from some outside source and you can't really ground it in the needs of your own life and the things that are going to make you flourish and thrive and, you know, be happy and healthy.
1: Why is Carter laughing
0: at me?
2: Carter, (laughs) are you laughing I'm not
0: (laughs) laughing at you. I was not laughing at you at all. Okay. I do think, uh, so I think we would agree on the I mean what you're basically talking about is is collectivist philosophy and the 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 evil consequences of collectivist philosophy when when adopted and how people are behaving. And um I think we're in agreement on that. Um my question is, is it and maybe your answer will be it's both, but is this a it seems to me that no matter how much someone pushes a collectivist philosophy, if you have a healthy psychology, a personal psychology, you reject demands for sacrifice for unearned guilt, regardless of your intellectual uh, status with respect to accepting the arguments. There's just a visceral like, I'm, but I didn't do that, so I'm not going to feel guilty for it. So I almost wonder if it means that there's some kind of rise of broken psychology So like sociologically, like, have we gotten more broken? Or am I just reading way too much into this? And it's been this way the whole time?
2: That's interesting. It's very hard for me to say empirically, you know, how have people changed? Or how have psychologies gotten better or worse? That's always a really complex question to try to answer. And there's tons of factors to try to tease apart. And we'd need longitudinal studies that used similar measures pre you right. know, it's actually, it's right. tough to know those, you know, especially over me. a fairly short historical time scale but I think we can make observations and we can notice patterns in the culture. And I would say, so I think I partly agree. It may turn out that I fully agree. I'm not sure. I at least partly agree with what you were saying earlier about people's own psychological health really influencing their susceptibility their vulnerability to certain kinds of manipulative attempts to get things from them through guilt and to to guilt them into you know making arbitrary concessions or seek or paying money for absolution you know or whatever the case may be so i think there's something very right about that i think it also Though it does depend on the uh, ideas that people accept and whether they endorse the guilt. Because in some cases, it's an honestly held, deep down, sincere belief that somebody has, for example, that in order to be a good person, you need to really care for your fellow human beings, right? And there's something about that, you know. I think there's a lot about that that's plausible and that's really that's pulling at benevolence and goodwill and genuinely positive, you know, traits in human beings. You know, we value each other. Other humans offer tremendous spiritual and practical value in our lives, and we, you know, we are, we have empathy and we don't want to see people needlessly suffer. We certainly, you know, it's healthy for us to to be repelled by injustice, right, when we really see injustice happening and to want to do something about it, I think race is a really complicated area because there still, in fact, observably are real ways that some people, you know, whether as women, whether as, you know, minorities of race, that they do still get the brunt of implicit biases and, you know, presumptions that are widespread in the culture, that do make life harder for them, and that that isn't fair, you know, that isn't just, and that there still are real problems to be solved. And I think that people with the very best and the most honest of intentions may really want to think hard about, okay, you know, how do I make sure that I'm not letting my implicit biases interfere with how I treat my colleagues? You know, and sometimes that may mean overcompensating and kind of swinging too far in the other direction. And sometimes, you know, I've struggled with this. Like if I have a colleague of color, or if I, you know, I mean, I notice myself sometimes like someone who is of Asian descent or someone, you know, where I know that I have certain very, you know, uninformed, very kind of quick and dirty, impulsive biases that can color what I expect of those people and you know, how I interact with them. And I sometimes find myself trying really hard to overcome that. And sometimes I swing too far and, uh, you know, where I'm too nice in a way that's sort of artificial and insincere and comes across as condescending, you know, or even just from the other side as a woman trying to be really assertive and making sure that I'm not, you know, just cow towing and I'm, that I'm negotiating and standing up for my, you know, rights that sometimes I take that too far and I get aggressive. And then I kind of the fact that go, that wasn't called for. You know, and it's just, it's actually really hard to, to navigate these issues and to be really thoughtful about them. And people can have false views that are reasonable to have. You know, people can falsely believe, and partly that may be because of really bad ideas in the culture that weren't well-intentioned in their origins, you know, perhaps, but that have trickled down and that have filtered into the culture that, in ways that make it really hard to kind of even notice their influence and where they're packaged in with things that are good you know like not wanting to hurt your not wanting to hurt innocent people wanting to be just right gets packaged in with assuming that people of color inherently have had it worse than you and that you owe them something and it can be really you know because there are elements of that like yeah i'm sure i've sometimes kind of flinched when I've walked down the street and seen a bunch of black men walking in the direction where I wouldn't have flinched if it were a bunch of white men, you know, and I'm sure there have been things like that. So in that sense, you could plausibly make the case that I've sort of been complicit, you know, and I think partly being a really conscientious person can make you more prone sometimes to taking on unearned guilt in cases where you can plausibly see some responsibility, you know, where, where you could plausibly see yourself making certain changes and taking mo- more ownership than you have. So I think there can be very virtuous motivations, actually, for getting sucked in to what I do think objectively is a really bad, really, you know, unhealthy, really unjust reverse racism, you know, of what you're describing.
0: No, I I think that makes sense because I think if it was not packaged with something that could resonate that was legitimate, it would probably be outright rejected more easily. Um, Whereas if you can um, kind of get... Because, you know, I think when you were describing how you behave, I mean, I just... And this isn't a very technical way to say it, but I felt like just saying, yeah, like any good person does. Like they try and treat people equally and realize when they have like, oh, am I treating this person wrong? Because it's like some other bias like that's just a normal thing that good people do to try and be just to other individuals um but that's what they have to kind of hook into and then bring all this other baggage along where suddenly you're responsible for institutional slavery 150 years ago um and and you're apologizing for it um i guess i guess i maybe retract though what i said earlier when i said there needs the Maybe the psychology seems like it, from what you're saying, it seems like the psychology maybe can help you a little bit. But if we're going to accept the premises of CBT, then, well, your belief system does indeed affect your emotional state. And so uh, if you've adopted a, a collectivist ideology, it's inevitable that eventually your emotional state will catch up with that and you will be vulnerable to this.
2: It's a really good point. Yeah, psychology um, doesn't come first, it doesn't have precedence over ideas, right? Ideas condition our psychology, like it or not.
1: Well, I have have a theory that we've, Carter and I have talked about before, which is that I think people, I think this unearned guilt phenomenon is attractive because it allows you to focus on something outside of yourself that you don't actually have any control over or any responsibility for. And focus on that instead of looking at things that scare you to look at that are personal that you do have control over and are responsible for and maybe should feel
0: guilty for. Yeah,
2: I think that's a big part of it. Right. The flip side of unearned guilt is unearned pride. Right? Right. But yes, like,
0: Which there's a lot of also.
2: There's tons. We see it everywhere. Right? It's yeah. trying to kind of buy your way. And I think I think the very nature of identity politics of kind of group based, you know derivation of your self-esteem, of your personal identity, I mean, I mean, it's pride, right? It's like when we I think there are elements of pride day and of like of gay pride that again, right, it's packaging in things that are actually really good and important and need to be celebrated with a kind of collectivist premise which suggests because you have a certain sexual orientation, you should take personal pride in that. Like, should we take pride in being heterosexual? That's weird. Right? Like there's a weird asymmetry to it. Why would we take pride? It's just this is how we've it been, be right? As long as we remember.
0: I, I think a, a a gay person would argue though that it's the pride is in um is it's basically thrown in con- in something. contrast to having to have shame. And so this is like my this is my reaction to the shame that yeah. I was expected to feel. Um
2: Again, and I think there's something really legitimate about that, right I think that there's, that there's a real need there that needs to be met right there's a real injustice that has been done wherein we un, you know, w- without any real basis, without knowledge, information you know or, or concern for the individual people we're talking about like in this really blanket way because of prejudices that go back thousands of years like we color people with a certain brush, right? We think that they're gross. We think that they're living the wrong kind of life. And that creates a lot of unearned guilt and shame, absolutely, right? And so this is an attempt to remediate that. This is an attempt to actually help people overcome what has been a real source of injustice and a real source of psychological distress that wasn't earned and isn't fair. But how do we do that, right? Because it's actually a really subtle and difficult problem that I think it can very easily, the solution can can adopt some of the premises of the disease, right? And I don't think it's even always bad. I don't think it's always serving a bad function. Sometimes that's precisely the function it serves is as a kind of like affirmation and reminder that I don't have to be ashamed. Why should I be ashamed? And, you know, what I do think people should take pride in and can take pride in is that they have the courage to actually assert who they are right, and to actually to be honest with themselves and others and to openly, to to be kind of selfishly celebratory of what they want and who they love, and to not cow, you know, be cowed by people who irrationally hate them, and so that is, that should be a source of pride, right, so, but it's such a fine line when you're deriving, because I've also definitely seen the phenomenon, I've seen it in my own family members who are immigrants from Eastern Europe who, came here largely, you know, we were refugees when we came to America, and we very much kind of defined ourselves as these hated minorities, uh, in this case, Jews, you know, who really didn't have it good in the Soviet Union, places in the world, and came here to escape from anti-Semitism and to escape from communism. And now here we are, but, but the mentality, this tribal mentality that what defines us is that we are the Jews, and we are the, the hated minority, and now here we are, now we've been taken in by our people, in effect, by like the, the white American anti-communist people. And now enter Trump and his tribal identity politics, enter this controversy about whether other kinds of immigrants should be allowed to enter freely across our border, and all of a sudden, We are on the side of, no, keep out the foreigners. Make America great. Also, we take such pride whenever a Jewish person wins a Nobel Prize, or whenever a Jewish, it's like, why are you, like, what do you have to do with his achievement? And this is an argument that I've actually had with family members who will remain unnamed, where we kind of, we experience real tension because there's a real way in which achievements by other people and the ways that other people of our blood type in effect have suffered are serving to prop up our self-esteem they're like sources of personal meaning and identity and achievement that's totally borrowed right so i think there's a a lot of that that's also playing into this
0: it's second-handed it's you know yeah i'm gonna get my self-esteem from someone of my tribe has done something well. And you see it even playing out with sports teams, right? Where, you know, the team from my city won, therefore I'm the best.
1: I think that's healthy though, because I think you're taking tribalism and you're putting into
0: something that is a game. Do you know what I mean?
2: It's healthier. It's healthier. Definitely healthier than the alternative. Yeah. I could agree if
0: it's with with self-awareness. Like I've I've been a sports team fan sometimes. I'm not totally into sports, but I'll go through periods of my life where I am. But I celebrate with self-awareness that like, yeah, I know this is all meaningless. It's just fun to have like this particular team I'm supporting and I'm going to celebrate because I was hoping they would win and they did. But if it's if it's taken beyond the self-awareness point, which I think it is a lot, then really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people knife each other in the UK over a football teams. So I, I think I think there's a lack of self-awareness there It's possible. Carrie, I know you've given anecdotes of like when you were managing comedians who were very woke social justice, how they would, like some of the most woke people, it gets performative sometimes, right? So some of the people who are most performatively woke are also the most horrible people when actually interacting with other individuals.
1: Yeah, I wasn't talking about, yeah, I wasn't really talking about unearned pride and being, I, I get that. And I agree that that's a thing people do as well. In fact, I made Carter apologize to me on behalf of all men for ah. sexism. And then he also uh, took credit for everything men have done. <laughs> because if he's gonna-
2: That's the flip like, side. Yeah. yeah.
0: If, I have, if I have to do one, I get the other. That's my argument.
2: Really fair. <laughs> totally fair. Um,
1: but awesome. yeah, I guess I was sort of more getting at, I think people, I think it's attractive because people can focus on things outside of themselves that they have no control over and then they don't actually have to do work. So people who have things they've done personally that they maybe should feel guilt for or that they've justified to themselves in some way or they're living some kind of lie or they're hypocrites and people don't know the real them, but they have this outside persona that people know. And then that outside persona in not always, but I've seen some of the most performatively woke people have some of the biggest issues that they haven't addressed that they actually yeah. should have guilt over.
2: Yeah. Maybe. yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, and, or they're just deeply unhappy. Yes. And, and this isn't actually solving their, you know, th- this is not filling the emptiness that they're trying to fill by deriving this borrowed artificial, impersonal sort, you know, pride and achievement by doing good works according to some arbitrary social standard, right? That, yeah, by kind of checking off these boxes. On the hand, it's way easier than like really doing the hard work of like taking ownership of your life and your decisions and figuring out like how do I want to actually spend my time and what is actually important to me day to day and how, what kinds of relationships do I really want to cultivate? You know, so much harder, right? To do that work mm-hmm. for ourselves without a little cheat sheet, like without a heuristic that we can just use to check boxes. Like today I... It's like I called someone out on their microaggressions and I, (laughs) you know, gave $20 to PETA or whatever. Right. Like that doesn't cost us very much, but also it doesn't gain us very much because at the end of the day, it's, it's this fleeting, almost like imaginary lip service, right. To some arbitrary good that really doesn't act like that doesn't manifest in our day-to-day lives and it's not even really shaping our souls in the way we were talking about earlier that our habits, you know, when we really embody a certain perspective and we act on it over time, it can really start to become more second nature. But like this isn't even a real enough perspective in the sense that it doesn't connect to enough of the things in our life. It's like it's a set of lines, right, that we say or it's like a discrete, it's like a set of don'ts and shouldn'ts. And, like, things we can call people out on or things we can avoid doing, right? Like, avoid being offensive, avoid, like, using certain terms that have become taboo. Mm -hmm. But, like, what is that buy anyone, right? Like, (laughs) it's not adding up to, like, a career that we can be really excited about that's adding value every day and that kind of builds on itself in some meaningful, right? Or a deep friendship or deep, like, you know, romantic relationship where we are like building a connection over time and really getting to know and building a life to like, it doesn't do anything actually for us.
1: Yeah. And in fact, most of those, again, anecdotally, I would say, I think a lot of times those friendships you have when you're performing like that are, um, transactional friendships and they're not actually the type of friends it's, uh, I like to say SJWs don't have friends, they have allies. As soon as you, as soon as you no longer share the belief system, it's like,
2: goodbye. (laughs) I think, and I've seen that with a lot of belief systems that function in this way, including what I would say are, you know, belief systems that have a lot of value, depending, you know, how you interact with them and how you interpret them, especially ones that aren't in the mainstream, where there's a certain culture that, or subculture that grows around that belief system, where you're kind of like, deriving this sense of kind of false self esteem. You're like, it's like a quick fix, right? It's like, meaning the illusion of a lot of friendship, of a lot of like validation that you're like this important person in the world that's offering all this value, but like all of it is kind of a, a cheap trick, you know? And I've seen it in lots of different contexts on every side of, you know, the political aisle.
1: So I read that you used to be an opera singer.
2: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. In training. I used to be an opera singer in training.
1: I don't think it would
2: be fair to call me an actual opera singer.
1: That's really interesting. I used to live with one of my best friends was an opera singer. I lived with two opera singers in college. Um, I'm just curious how you made that jump to what you're doing now.
2: Um, Well, I was deeply indecisive as well it's it's a fairly stable trait, but it was even worse back then, before I knew how to cope with it. Um, And so when I was a high school student, going into college, uh, singing had been a really big part. First, playing violin, I played violin for 10 years. It was a very serious pursuit, but not to the point that it ever really overtook my academic and like intellectual studies, and like I was too much of a brainy intellectual kid to be fully consumed and like to to actually practice as much as I needed to and not get bored and to like really dedicate myself, which is really the issue at the end of the day. But, but I loved it. And I got some, you know, reasonably far first in my violin, you know, like semi-finals of competitions, this and that and the youth orchestra. And then I switched to singing at a certain point for various reasons, just sort of fit me better and was the lead role in my high school musical my senior year it was this really big part of my life but not quite as big as the intellectual and the, the kind of artistic but like more literary artistic sphere even though i really cared about kind of the arts and you know the spirit it was often much more in a context where there's like words mm-hmm. i was just too literary and where i had to write the words and it couldn't just be you know, reciting somebody else's lyrics. And so, but I couldn't just like make the decision. So I actually pursued a dual degree program at two different universities. I was pursuing, which is insane. Don't do that. Um, But I went and I was getting a bachelor of music degree at New England Conservatory and a bachelor of what ended up being science, you know, just like a normal college degree at Tufts university. And they had this five-year program where you could pay one tuition for Two bachelor's degrees, in oh, fact, wow. by driving yourself crazy and by shuttling back and forth across Boston like three days a week and having n- no semblance of a life. But I had to do it the hard way, I had to like try it out and see for myself. So I think I went a year and a half into the program before officially quitting the conservatory and just kind of going full steam ahead, and triple majoring, you know, whatever at Tufts. <laughs> so Wow. I learned the hard way. That's my my style. <laughs>
0: Well, we wouldn't be interviewing you if you were a violinist or an <laughs> opera singer. So, That's true. So uh, that it
2: worked out for the I, best.
0: <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I really appreciate you, Dr. Gorlin. I really appreciate you um, taking the time. I know it's been a long conversation, but I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's been great. Me and, too. Uh,
2: Thank you. You guys yeah. ask really fantastic questions, and you guys really did your homework. This was very uplifting. For me. You really like, reaffirmed my self-esteem with, like, the actual <laughs> amount of substantive knowledge that you guys brought to this conversation, which I don't think anyone else in the world collectively has other than, like, me and my former graduate advisor. So so thank you
0: for that. Well, I, I really like your work. I think we're, I'm, we're, I think we're both really impressed with it, and uh, I'm really glad we're able to have this, this conversation. So, so thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, and thank you again for inviting me and for all the really thoughtful questions.
1: Thank you very much.